Good morning, everybody. Um, our passage this morning comes towards the end of what I think would have to be a contender for the most teachiest of teaching moments in the Bible. And that's a pretty big call when you think of all of the teaching times that Jesus had with his disciples and with the people. But if I had to pick one, I would pick these conversations that happen around a well in Samaria because of their depth and because of what they reveal to us about Jesus and about the kingdom of God. So if you've got Bibles or devices that you can uh, look up the scriptures, uh, please turn to John chapter 4. Now we're coming in towards the end of the chapter and there's been a lot of teaching that has played itself out in the first part of that chapter and that chapter builds on themes which happened in the chapters which precede it. So we're going to begin with um, a bit of a recap this morning before we get to our passage for today. So you can follow through with me just starting from the start of John chapter 4. So Jesus and his disciples are travelling to, together to Galilee from Judea. And you can see on the, the little map up here, they've begun down in this area and they're trying to get up to this area here. Now that is going to entail quite a few days walking because travel in those days happened on foot. Now their journey could be made maybe three days shorter if they decided to take the direct route. Just head north straight up here. But no self-respecting Jew was going to go that way because of the disdain with which they held the people who lived in that middle region of Samaria. The Samaritans who lived in that region were the descendants of those who were left behind after the Assyrian invasion of the Northern Kingdom. Syria had invaded, the people were, many of them, taken away, but those who remained intermarried with the people from the five lands that the Assyrian conquerors brought in to resettle that part of the kingdom. And so to the Jews, these marriages made these people unclean. They were of mixed blood. The Samaritans also only accepted the first five books of Moses' teachings as scripture. So the rest of the history books, the prophets, the wisdom books, were not part of the Samaritan scripture. Nonetheless, when the Jews returned from their exile, it was the Samaritans who offered to help them rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. But with a, a renewed zeal from the law, for, for the law and a renewed desire to keep themselves holy and to do what was right before God, the Jews turned down their offer. And you can imagine that that did not go down well uh, with the Samaritans. 
So the Samaritans refused to worship in Jerusalem and they instead worshipped on this mountain here, Gerizim. Until in their own temple that they had built on that mountain. Until 128 BC when the Jews burned down that temple because the Samaritans refused to convert to Judaism. They continued to use the mountain for worship, but the temple was no longer there. So you get the general impression from that sort of history that these were two people groups that had very deep and long-held problems between the two countries. To the Jews, the Samaritans were quite literally a stumbling block because they believed that while they occupied this land, that was land that was part of the land uh, of Manasseh and Ephraim, they believed that God's end time promises to them would not be fulfilled. So the Jews did what most of us do when we encounter a stumbling block. They tried to avoid it most of the time. And so a journey from Judea up to Galilee would involve sort of some travel in the northeasterly direction, a river crossing, then travel up the other side of the river, up this desert route on the east, another river crossing before heading back in to Galilee. That's not what Jesus did. That's what most people would have done, but that is not what Jesus did. John records for us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, he doesn't give us any reasons as to why Jesus had to go through Samaria. There is no particular business that Jesus had to do. He didn't have any appointments in Samaria, nor did he seem to be in any particular rush to head north to Galilee. In fact, he ends up staying a couple of days in one of the towns in Samaria, so he can't have been in any particular rush to get to Galilee quickly. I think Jesus had to go through Samaria out of obedience to the Father's will, but because he did have business to attend to in Samaria, but it was business of a spiritual nature. It was kingdom business. And so it is that in Samaria by a well, we find Jesus sitting down to give what will be a masterclass in the kingdom of God. Jesus is tired from his journey. They've reached a place called Sychar, which uh, you can see on the map up here, is between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So that, that picture up there will give you a bit of a better view of what this looks like. You can see the two mountains there and the town uh, just in, in the, the Plains Valley area between these two mountains. And this one here will give you a bit of a better look if you've got some good eyes. You can see with all of the modern day build-up that's happened there of settlement, um, you can see here's the, the town of Sychar. Here's the well 
which is so prominent in the story. This up here is Gerizim and Ebal over there. Now, this is an area that is rich in biblical history. It was here that the Lord promised the promised land to Abraham. It was here that Jacob erected an altar and dug a well and grazed his flocks. It was in this area, this place where the land had first been promised to Abraham, that Joshua brought the people after the exodus, after their years of wilderness wandering, as commanded by Moses, he brought the people to this particular place. And it was here that Joshua erected an altar to the Lord on Mount Ebal. And here in this area that serves as a natural sort of amphitheater, that he had the tribes assemble, as Moses had told him, in front of Gerizim and in front of Ebal, to proclaim the blessings under the law from Gerizim and the curses from Mount Ebal. You'll find that in Joshua chapter 8. And then after they'd gone through and uh, the, the conquest of the land had been completed, just before his death, he reassembled the tribes in this place and it was in this place that they renewed their covenant with God, promising to serve him. And now it is here in this very special place, this place of new beginnings for the people of God, that Jesus comes and he sits at a well. The people have long since been conquered by Assyria. What remains of them had intermarried with those foreigners and they'd adopted some of the, the worship practices of the foreigners. But nonetheless, historically, this had been a place of new beginnings for the people of God. And I don't think there is any coincidence in the fact that John writes down that Jesus had to go to Samaria. His disciples go on ahead of him into town to buy food. Jesus is tired. He sits by the well in the heat of the day. And a Samaritan woman approaches she comes to the well to draw water and Jesus asks her for a drink. It seems to us like a very simple scene and a very simple request, except it's not. She should not be here in the middle of the day. She comes here at this time on account of her baggage to avoid the whispers to avoid the finger pointing and the judgmental glances because she is an outcast even in her own community. He shouldn't be speaking with her because she is a Samaritan woman. And like the Gentile women, such women were considered to be in a perpetual state of ritual uncleanliness. But she comes and he speaks with her. And what ensues would have to be one of the most astounding encounters that anyone had with Jesus. It begins simply enough, he's thirsty, he has a physical need, and he asks her for a drink. But soon enough, 
Jesus is using the physical reality of his situation to teach her spiritual truths about the life-giving water that he offers. She struggles to grasp the spiritual. To her, living water is this fresh spring water which is found in the well as opposed to stagnant water which would be considered dead water. The well is deep. Even today, it is still over 100 feet deep. And she wonders how this man imagines that he's going to get to this living water down the bottom of the well since he's brought nothing to reach it. Jesus talks about the water that he gives becoming a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now the Jews may well have picked up on the hints that he was giving here because in Jeremiah, God is described as a spring of living water. And in the Psalms, he's described as a fountain of life. But the Samaritans did not recognise the prophetic books of the Bible nor the Psalms. So she is unlikely to have picked up on this. Further, because she was a woman, even if they had recognised those books, she is unlikely to have had much teaching in the scriptures. So it's highly unlikely that she could have picked up on those clues. She's still operating in the physical. And whatever this water is, she doesn't quite understand what it is, but if it means that she's not going to have to keep coming back here in the heat of the day to quench her thirst, she wants some of it. Jesus then reveals that he knows something of her circumstances and she's impressed. She believes him now to be a prophet. And so she raises that age-old question between the Samaritans and the Jews about worship, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. Again, she's still operating in the physical. And again, Jesus moves her towards the spiritual a time is coming, he says, and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. A time is coming and has now come. This woman is being treated to a teaching moment like no other. Here in this place of new beginnings for God's people, Jesus has just heralded the beginning of the God's new age, an age when the old questions of where to worship will no longer matter, an age when what will matter is being in right relationship with the one who is worthy of worship. She's beginning to understand that this conversation has moved beyond the physical of water and husbands and where to worship and that they're in different territory now. So she reveals that she knows that the Messiah is coming who will explain all of these things. And then 
in what would have to be the seven most earth-shattering words that anyone is likely to hear, Jesus replies simply, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, you can kind of almost feel her jaw dropping to the floor and the cogs of her mind starting to turn. And just as all of this is happening, who should return to this scene but the disciples, fresh back from their shopping expedition. And you can imagine her glancing first to Jesus and then to the disciples and then perhaps lowering her eyes, waiting to see what was going to happen. They had been alone, a man and a woman at the well a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman, no less, a rabbi and a Samaritan woman, no less. They had been alone and they had been talking. And now here were all of his mates. And as the seconds tick by, you can imagine those words running through her mind. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. You have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. Time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I who speak to you am he and suddenly she knows what to do leaving the physical of the water jar behind she goes back to town to tell anyone who will listen to her about this encounter that she's had and now it is the disciples turn for a master class in the kingdom of god at the well in samaria so we're going to pick up the story at Verse 31, if you're following along, John chapter 4, verse 31. And we're going to read these verses out. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. Now the disciples here were suffering from the same problem that the Samaritan woman had been as well. And she had the same problem as Nicodemus before her in chapter 3. And he had the same problem as the Jews in chapter 2. 
their spiritual senses were not yet well developed. They were still operating predominantly in the physical realm. So the Jews in chapter 2 were incredulous that Jesus should suggest that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Impossible, they said. This temple took 46 years to build. No one could rebuild it in three days. They were thinking physical. Jesus was thinking spiritual. He was thinking that they would know God through him, not through any physical building. In chapter 3 to Nicodemus, this great teacher of the people is left wondering, how is it possible that he might enter his mother's womb a second time when Jesus tells him that you must be born again? He's thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual that Nicodemus and all who would enter the kingdom of God would need to be reborn, not physically, but of the spirit. And then, of course, the woman who we've just talked about, she's wondering how this man's going to reach this water down in the well. She's thinking physical. Jesus knows that he will be the source of life-giving water for those who will believe. And now here we find the disciples. It's their turn. When they'd left Jesus, he was tired and hungry and now they've brought him food and he tells them that he has food to eat that they know nothing about. And so they assume that somebody else must have brought him food to satisfy his hunger. They're thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual when he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In every instance, the people and their reaction is physical. And in every instance, Jesus is trying to help them see that the kingdom of God is of a very different nature and they need to start being able to think and feel and see in the spiritual. Now, the area that they were in would have been surrounded by fields of wheat. And perhaps like Jesus, his disciples were also tired and hungry. And perhaps as they were making their way back to town, they had gazed at these recently planted fields of wheat and they had wished that they had been ready for the harvest. And then perhaps they could have just purchased some grains from the farmer or perhaps even gleaned from the edges of the crop by hand rather than having to trudge all the way back into town and all the way back out again to buy food. Perhaps they even commented to each other that there are still four months until the harvest. We can't say for sure. But what we do know is that Jesus chose to quote what we believe is a, a well-known saying of the time. He says, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? Now, in the physical world, these things are pretty predictable, aren't they? Anyone who's spent time amongst agricultural communities will know 
that most farmers have it pretty down pat. They know how long it's going to be from when they sow their crop until when that crop will come out of the ground. And barring any sort of major weather event, it follows a pretty predictable schedule. You don't harvest grain while there is still colour in the heads because if you do, the grains will be too small, they won't be hard enough to survive, they won't store well because they're not hard enough, they've still got too much moisture in them. So you don't harvest wheat when the heads are still green. You wait for the fields to turn white. You wait for the heads to start nodding with the weight of the grains filling. And then once they're doing that, the last thing to do is to make sure that they've hardened up and dried out. So if you squeeze them between your fingers or between your teeth, you shouldn't get any of that milkiness coming out. They need to be hard so that they will store well. And once you've reached that state, then it's time to send the harvesters through. It's a pretty predictable process. It was predictable back then and it is still predictable today. But Jesus isn't interested here in teaching them about how wheat grows. He's again setting up a contrast between the physical, which they understand well, and the spiritual of the kingdom of God, which he wants them to understand. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are white for the harvest. And once again, if you put yourselves in the position of those disciples who just walked back along the road through all of these fields to the towns, you can probably imagine what they're thinking. Uh, no, they're not white for the harvest. They're still green and they're months off the harvest. And then perhaps they turn and look maybe in the direction that Jesus is pointing as he tells them to look at the fields that are white from the harvest. And what do they see? But the Samaritans clad in white coming out of the towns towards them. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. How is that possible, they must think. Sowing and reaping or harvest time, they don't even occur anywhere near each other. Often the person who sows the crop doesn't even have anything to do with the ones who harvest it. It's a basic principle. Everybody knows that. It's the way things work here on earth. But of course, Jesus isn't teaching about the way things work here on earth. He's teaching not about a physical harvest. He's teaching about a spiritual harvest in the kingdom of God. And he is, of course, drawing upon, as he does in so many other instances, drawing upon the foundation of the prophets and specifically this time from Amos, God's prophet to the northern kingdom. The days are coming, declares the Lord. This is from Amos. 
when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one who's treading the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And now here is Jesus many, many years later, sitting by Jacob's well in this place steeped in the history of all the new beginnings of God's people in what was once part of the northern kingdom to which Amos prophesied. And as this crowd of Samaritans moved towards them through the fields, Jesus is declaring that time to be now. This is the dawning of a new era. The kingdom of God has begun and he needs them to understand how this kingdom operates because it's a spiritual kingdom. So it doesn't operate in the ways that they understand. It doesn't operate like what they're used to in a world that is dominated by the law and the temple and their traditions. And perhaps if you've ever travelled to an unfamiliar land, travelling in a place where nobody speaks or acts like you, you might understand something of just how disorientating it can be to be in a place where things just don't work like you expect them to work. I was once invited to speak at a conference in Korea. And the conference was being held in a city called Daejeon, which is about 160 kilometres south of the capital. And a colleague and I needed to make our way there, guided by the very careful instructions that the conference organisers had provided for us. So we got off the plane in the capital and we collected our bags and as per their instructions, we made our way to the bus ticket booth thing, which was easy to identify because it had a picture of a bus over the top of it. And once there, all we needed to do was to say the name of the city that we were going to, hand over some money and we were issued the appropriate tickets and gestures were made in the direction of where the buses were. Once we got to the buses, again, we moved down the line just saying the name of the city until eventually someone nodded and urged us to get on the bus. And we dutifully handed him the slip of paper, which presumably told the bus driver where we needed to go and which stop we needed to get off at and could he please let us know when to get off the bus. Well, 160 kilometres travel, it's not a, you know, it's not a two minute journey. We were on the bus for probably an hour and a half. And at each stop, the driver had a little microphone and he would announce something, presumably where the stop was, what it was, and sometimes people would get off and sometimes they wouldn't get off and we would just move on. And the further we went and the more and more this went on, the more we were hoping that the bus driver had actually remembered that he needed to somehow let us know where we had to get off because we had no idea where we were going. Eventually we stopped again, there was another announcement. This time, nobody got off, but we didn't keep driving. We sat there, still nobody got off. And the bus driver made another announcement. The whole bus burst out into hysterical laughter. Everybody turned to look at us and we took it as a sign and got off the bus. Once we were off the bus, we had instructions to go to the taxi rank. So we went to the taxi rank. 
and got into a taxi and told the taxi driver the name of the hotel that we were booked into. He seemed to know what he was doing and where we were going, so we were fairly confident that that would be the end of any dramas and we would turn up at the, the hotel and get out. Well, mostly the trip was uneventful. It was done in silence because neither of us could speak each other's language until at one point the taxi driver turned round and in an agitated voice started speaking very quickly and making all sorts of gestures. So fresh from my experience on the bus, I took it as a sign, opened the door and got out into swerving traffic and honking horns and <laughs> very quickly I turned around, dived back into the car. My colleague was in hysterics on the back seat the taxi driver turned around, started madly gesturing and yelling at me again in Korean. And then he said not another word until we got to our hotel, lest this crazy woman would get out of the car into the middle of traffic again. Turns out our car was just stopped in some turning traffic that was banked back for miles. And I guess he was angry or frustrated about that. But the rest of the traffic that was going straight was traveling pretty fast. I needed someone to come with me and introduce me to that country, to familiarize me with the way things work and where I was going. And that is just like what Jesus is doing in these first few chapters of John's gospel. Time is coming and has now come. It's a new beginning, things are going to be different. And so Jesus is teaching and showing them what this kingdom of God is like and the way that things work within it. Now, I don't know how many of you have been involved in the physical work of sowing or harvesting, but in my experience working for many years uh, with farmers, both sowing and harvesting are hard physical work. But there's a bit of a different atmosphere between the two because a farmer doesn't get paid for sowing the crop. He gets paid for the end result. When you're sowing the crop, there's that uncertainty there. Will frost or hail or, or some other disaster threaten the crop? But at harvest time, things are pretty much guaranteed. Provided the yield is good and the price is high, the farmer will see effort a reward for the effort that they've put in. And the atmosphere is jovial and sometimes, sometimes the work just doesn't seem so hard. Now, normally this little saying that Jesus quotes, one sows and another reaps, would point to that inequality between harvesting and sowing. The one who sows works hard but doesn't get to enjoy the benefits of the crop while the one who harvests gets to enjoy all the benefits without necessarily having participated in the preparation. But here, Jesus is saying that interval is compressed so that both will share the joy of the harvest because the harvest will be so great that it will be a continual activity. The harvest will still be happening while sowing needs to be done. The planter will be overtaken by the one treading the grapes. And when you think about all those years between the planting of a grapevine 
and when you can actually get sufficient yield to tread wine, the message is pretty clear. Things happen differently in the kingdom of God. The word of God has just been sown into a single Samaritan woman. Jesus used something physical, the water, something that she understood, and he used it to introduce her to something spiritual that she was yet to fully understand. And all of us can do that in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities. It's a very simple approach that all of us can use. She hadn't even fully grasped the concept yet. And yet he was the harvest, nourished by the Holy Spirit, coming already in the form of the multitude of townsfolk who had heard her testimony and were coming now towards them. Our theme for this month of May, as Bruce and others have shown us this morning, has been that kingdom business is mission. And our passage today reminds us that mission is first and foremost a spiritual exercise because the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And those of us who are part of this kingdom must be reborn into it of the spirit and we must live within that tension of being part of a kingdom that has come but has not yet fully been realised. And so we must live as physical beings on a physical earth as part of a spiritual kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come, but the work of kingdom building that we call mission is ongoing. And it will continue through all the ages of the church until the fullness of the Gentiles have been brought in and the unbelieving of Israel uh, have accepted Christ. And faith is the currency and the language of that kingdom. And so working in our own strength is just like opening the door into fast-flowing traffic in a country that you know nothing about. It is bound for disaster. The thing is we haven't been left to our own devices. We have been given the Holy Spirit who is like our guide in this kingdom of God. So it is by faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit that the reaper and the sower do their work together by faith and they rejoice in the harvest that is brought in. All of us have a part to play, sowing, harvesting, or perhaps doing the work of tending in between. And as we reach the end of our mission-focused month of May, I urge you not to be satisfied just to hear the stories of what others are doing. God used one very unpopular Samaritan woman with a half-baked understanding of the gospel to bring many 
from her, her town to Jesus. And if she can be used, then any one of us can be used too. Some, like the Apostle Paul, were sent to places far and wide and others, like this woman today, were called merely to go home and to share the news with their family and friends. We all have a part to play in this great harvest. May God, by his spirit, empower the work and bless the harvest. Amen. Father God, we are so familiar with the way things work in the physical world that it is so easy for us to fall back into the mindset of the physical, working in our own strength. Lord, open our eyes, remove our spiritual blindness, help us to know your will and your ways, Help us to desire what you want and to trust the leading of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us to be people who walk by faith and sow in faith and who reap a great harvest for your kingdom in faith. Amen.